Somebody want to pray for us as we start today? Offer of silence, yeah. I got it. Got it? Cool, thanks. Lord God, uh, thank you for the week. Lord, uh, we just thank you for being a part of our lives, and uh, we ask that you uh, that you help us to open our eyes and, and see the, the needs that are around us and um, the people that are in our lives, that, uh, that you shine through us. In Jesus Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen, thank you. Um, before we get started, I just want to let you know that um, our podcasts have been approved and are now showing up in the iTunes store. Um, so if you search for the crossing, there's going to be a whole bunch that show up, but that icon, that logo is there. If you get like the second or third page, you'll find it. Um, and it looks like it's taking a while for the actual podcast to show up in the iTunes store, but if you subscribe, like they show up quickly. It's so like as soon as I publish them out there, you'll get a notification that's there. So there are two out there from when we were in Peter, and then I did one, I think two weeks ago, is out there, and as I get them out um, ready and published they'll show up so it takes a while to work on the files and get them edited down in, in a size that sounds good but is small enough to actually work so um so if you miss weeks or whatever you can now go to itunes and subscribe and catch up so they're out there so um if you have any questions or trouble with that let us know we'll help you out so we are um, still in chapter nine of acts today we are looking at um Saul, again, in the wake of last week, what happened last week? He was blinded. He was blinded. Actually, last week, was he was unblinded. Oh. <laughs> yeah, he was blinded two weeks ago, and last week was uh, his... Um, <laughs> last week, Ananias came and talked to him, and remember, he, he laid hands on him, um, and we're told something like scales fell out of Saul's eyes and he was able to see again and he ate again. He had not eaten for three days, we're told. Um, and Ananias, remember, Saul on the road had not been told what to do other than to go to Damascus. And his instruction from Jesus was, go there, you will be told what to do there. And so Ananias is now coming to him, to Saul. Um, and he's, remember, he's scared about coming to see Saul because he knows who Saul is and what Saul's trying to do. And that is to eradicate the church or the, the Jesus movement. Um, and so he comes to Saul um, against his will a little bit um, after Jesus has appeared to him in a vision and said, you need to go do this for me um, or I need you to do this. Um, and presumably, we don't actually get the dialogue there, but we're told that they sit down and eat afterwards. Um, Ananias is the one that gets to tell um, Paul what his role is. Because um, remember, in, in the vision, Jesus had said, "He's my Saul is my chosen instrument. I need you to go talk to him about that. And so it, we're, we're assuming, reasonably so, that an Ananias is now coming to Saul, and now Ananias is telling Saul what God has in store for him. Um, so that was sort of last week. Um, and so this week we're going to pick up there um, and, and sort of see what happens to Saul. I told you, I think two weeks ago, we talked a little bit about the structure of Acts that it starts looking at, Peter and John and the early church, and then um, we got uh, Philip and Stephen and their stories as they sort of um, start to move the gospel outside of out of Jerusalem. Um, Philip being the one that takes it to the Samaritan people, Samaria, um, sort of plants the seed of the gospel that Saul has now come to Damascus to, to eradicate 
Um, and then we said we're going to look at this sort of the call story, the, the beginning of Saul, and then today is like the last bit of that call story, and then we're going to flip back to the, re- the rest of the church, and then we're going to leave Saul for a little while, and then we're going to come back to him later. And so this, uh, it's almost like Acts, you know, tells you a little bit, it says, meanwhile, in another part of Israel, or another part of the area. And so the, the, the action's flipping back and forth to di- the different people groups and the different areas in which the, the gospel is sort of taking root and, and multiplying and, and expanding and doing its thing. And so today's um, little bit that we're looking at is sort of the end of this call story of Saul, and then next week we'll move back to another um, set of people. Um, actually, we're gonna, we'll start looking at Peter again. So uh, if somebody would be willing to read for us today, we are looking at, um, it's 19, it's the second half of 19, um, all the way through 31. It's just two screens of text, though. I'm going to try. Okay. For some days, he was with his disciples in Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon him for his name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. All right, thank you. So, um, talk to me about what sticks out real quick. What's going on? The tables have turned on Saul now. Yeah, that's a good pickup. Obviously, the tables have turned on Saul, and now he's the one. That they're the the Jewish people, the traditionalists, are out to kill, right? Um, you see that twice here. Once in Damascus, where he is right now, and then in the second half of what we read, he's going back to Jerusalem, and then there the Hellenists get upset and try to plot to kill him. And so now he's taken up the mantle of the gospel preacher. Um, he is now preaching the thing that he had set out to destroy, and. The people that sent him are still upset about the message. It's not like, oh, you believe now, Saul, so everything's cool. right? They're still upset about that, and so now he becomes the target. What else? He's accepted into the disciples. And at first, they're fearing because they're afraid he's going to bind them up, take them back. Right, right. Them. But now he's accepted. Barnabas. Barnabas. Barnabas says, hey, it's okay. Yeah. 
Yep. So Saul is being sort of exactly accepted in. And remember last week when Ananias comes to Saul, he calls him Brother Saul. And it's that moment at which you know Saul is brought into the family, um, given the status of brother. And here we, you know, the, the church is considered is called brothers. Uh, so it's like the brotherhood of the Jesus movement um, and sisterhood, but it's a male-dominated society, so it's brothers. But um, yeah, absolutely. He is with with not not without trepidation, right? They're kind of they're sharing the same fear that Ananias had last week about going to see Saul. They're scared of what he might be there to do. Um, and it takes Barnabas stepping up and sort of saying, hey, this is who Saul is and what he's been through, and I can attest to his um, legitimacy. But pretty soon he's, he's taken in, he's accepted, um, and even cared for, and they make sure he's not killed at the end of what we just read. So what else is going on here? Anything else stick out? No? Okay, well, we'll jump in it, and I'm sure other questions will come up as we go. Um, I'm really interested to see where today's discussion goes. Um, there's a phrase in here that's really interesting, and uh, we get to debate and discuss here at the end about it. So. Um, so at the beginning, obviously, we're told he's hanging out in Damascus and says from some, for some days. So he's there for a while. So he has gone to Damascus, remember, to eradicate um, the Jesus movement, that's where he, uh, on the road, he sees Jesus. Jesus says, what are you doing? Why are you persecuting me? Then he, he's told to go into Damascus, and that's where Ananias finds him, um, restores his sight, and gives him his marching orders from God. And so we're told here that he's hang, he stays there for a while. So it's not like he restores his sight, here's from Ananias, turns around and takes off back to Jerusalem. So he's there for a little while, and we're told there in verse 20, um, what about his response? What's it say he does? Sorry? Yeah, yeah. It's interesting it says he immediately began preaching. Um, I don't know, that's, that strikes me. I don't know if it strikes you guys. Um, I mean, we see, we see that a lot in Scripture, but you got to think, like, most of the people that, like, saw, he was very well equipped in knowledge. Yeah. So, like, for him, like, when it, you know, he had his moment, I imagine it was like, wow, all this stuff I knew in the Old Testament was Jesus. So he, like, he could immediately turn around and be like, this stuff we know was actually Jesus. Right, and we talked about, a lot about that last week. Um, that's absolutely right. That, that Saul, in some ways, is, well, in many ways, is the perfect candidate for the, the role that he's getting ready to fill. And awesome. one being the fact that he is sort of at the top of the Pharisee class. Um, he's well-known, he's well-respected. He has an amazing command of the Scriptures, Scriptures being the Old Testament, the history of God, and what he's done in his people. And, and Chris is right. So when, when things flip here for Saul, and he realizes that Jesus actually is uh, the Messiah, um, it's a real easy f- sort of slide into, okay, well, well, now we need to go back and sort of re-understand all of the old stuff. And we're going to see Paul do that once it becomes Paul and starts writing letters in his letters. You're going to watch him sort of reinterpret the Old Testament in light of what he now knows about Jesus. Didn't we right? talk a few weeks ago about his passion? He definitely was a guy who was passionate, passionate about what he did and what his belief was. So yeah. that passion is flipped. Right, right. The, I mean, at the very beginning, yeah. yeah, we had that discussion about whether or not Saul is actually an evil guy. That's obviously up for debate and discussion, and I'm not saying one way or the other. But 
he's definitely a godly man, just misguided. And so it was his fervor and his, I mean, he's referred to as a zealous guy, which is a all-in, kind of obsessive, over-the-top about God and his institution and belief and right belief and right action. And so he's very much a man who is passionate about God. And so those put those things together, very knowledgeable, very passionate. God flips the switch on him to, to let him understand who Jesus is. And so he's just ready to rock. Um, and, and don't forget that that switch is this amazing and bizarre experience on a road in which the bodily, physical Jesus shows up you know, surrounded by light and talks to him, you know, and, and so, I mean, I'm just, I'm just thinking about the action of this, sort of, if, if I was on the outside actually watching this happen, here comes Saul, he has this crazy experience, and imme- we're told immediately he pops up, gets done with dinner on Ani- with Ananias, you know, in the next day, or maybe even that day, walks out the door and starts preaching, and just sort of the immediacy that this happens is, is, is sort of profound and, and I think interesting, so maybe you don't, but I do. Um, and then we're told he's saying, you know, what he's what is he preaching? He is the Son of God. Okay, um, that's an interesting phrase. It's the first time it shows up in Acts. It's obviously there in the Gospels. Um, it's what Peter says: "You are the Christ. You're the Son of God." When when Jesus asks, "Who do they say that I am?" and he asks, "Who do you say that I am?" and Peter says, "You're the Son of God." Um, so it's not the first time we've seen it, certainly in the New Testament, but it is the first time it's showing up in Acts. Um, it's an interesting phrase. That's the one we're going to come back to. Because um, it's not without Old Testament context also, and we need to understand that to know exactly what what Paul or Saul is saying here and what Luke wants us to understand that Saul is preaching as he goes out into the synagogues. Um, but like I said, we're going to come back to that because that's the discussion point at the end here, so... Then into 21 it says, all who heard him were amazed. Um, and so they have this moment of um, just sort of dumbfoundedness, especially, I mean, because he's come in, he's sort of been hiding out for three days, not doing anything. Ananias comes to him, and all of a sudden, you know, very quickly Saul emerges from his hole on, remember, he's on this road called Straight, which is the main thoroughfare, the main road in Damascus. You know, so, so, you know, presumably, I mean, we're sort of imagining now, the next day or whatever, he, you know, sun rises and out comes Saul preaching the gospel. Where, I mean, put yourself in the, the Jewish or the, the, the church, the Jesus followers, uh, choose for a minute. You're expecting this guy to come and eradicate you and all of a sudden he pops out of the house the next day and he's your biggest cheerleader. <laughs> you know, so that, that's, that's quite a moment for sure. And so you, you can understand why, uh, Luke tells us that they're amazed. I mean, they're, they're, they've got to be dumbfounded. Like, what in the world is going on here? Um, I'm sure they end up hearing the story, because Barnabas is going to tell it later, about what happened to him on the road. But certainly at the beginning there, they don't know that Jesus showed up. right? They don't, they don't really probably know what has happened on the road to make Saul flip like this. All they know is, here comes this guy who was coming to bind us and take us back to Jerusalem to be tried in front of the priests. And now, here he is very adeptly and until you know from a very educated standpoint teaching the very thing that we've we're now claiming so that that's that's definitely a big moment for not only paul saul but uh the church in damascus i mean this this is that's 
That's a big God moment, certainly for them. You know, if you're in their shoes two days earlier, what are you worrying about? What are you praying about? Yeah, that you're not being taken to your death. That God will show up and save you somehow. Um, and I doubt this is what you expected God to do for you. And so this is, this is not only an amazement at what has happened to Saul, but, wow, God, you, you just came through in a big way. The guy sent to bind us is now preaching for us. I mean, that, that's... If anything is going to sort of get your fire going as, as a Jesus follower in Damascus, this is, this is going to do it. Um, 22, I think, is very interesting. Okay. Mine's a little differently. Um, mine says Saul's preaching became more and more powerful, and the Jews and Damascus could not disprove the proof that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. What translation do you have? Uh, New Living. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, it seems a little different than what's up there. Same point, but yeah, it's phrased a little differently. Does anybody have any other translation here? Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by providing that this Jesus is the Christ. Okay. I just find it interesting that it says, like, the Jews couldn't, like, disprove what he's saying. They couldn't, sure. they couldn't find anything against Yeah. And I think I don't think either of those is, is wrong. I mean, just knowing what we know about the interaction with Jesus and the way the Jews would be coming back at him, trying to this this is back and forth. Yeah, that, that's what um, it. Yeah, you know, it'd be interesting to to pull out the Greek and figure out what exactly it says. But the point is the same that there's this constant, there's this debate going on now that Paul's engaged Saul at this point. Sorry, is engaged in in Damascus after this experience where he's now preaching for for Christ and the Jewish population that's there. Um, is still pushing back. Who's, and, who's in this debate? Would it be the Pharisees? Would it be... Yeah, we've got... Um, by this time, we're first century, um, so the the exile has happened. Remember, that happened in 500 B.C. Um, but we are in Samaria. Um, Damascus is part of the Samaritan area. So we have Christians, we have Jews that are living there. We have... Um, Potentially, I mean, some of this is sort of hypothesis. At this point, we're guessing, all right, reasonably guessing. Um, Jews that probably have moved there, but we also have those northern kingdom Jews that became Samaritans that still claim to be Jews. Remember, they're claiming the, the heritage to Judaism, um, which obviously the, the text, scriptures we have don't agree with, but from their perspective, they're the real Israel. Um, and so it's... I mean, it's, it's probably a mix of all of that, um, but it, this this seems to indicate that there are Jews, sort of southern kingdom Jews, that are now in Damascus, and that's who he's now debating with. That's that's how I read this. So I'm sure the conversation is going on with everybody, but this line, as we read it, I'm taking. He's now interacting with sort of Jerusalem Jews, the the people of. Southern Kingdom that have sort of held the scriptures and um, are sort of the, the line of David that came out of the tribes, the southern tribes. That makes sense. Any other questions about that? Okay. Um, right, and and remember, I mean, this goes back to who we said Saul is. I mean, he's 
he knows every. He, I mean, I'm not going to say he knows everything, but he he knows quite a bit about the Old Testament and has proven his ability to understand and interpret them um, to the point that he's now, you know, was at the head of the Pharisee class. So the Jews coming to uh, attack him or disagree with him or try to disprove Christ now have someone who really knows his stuff arguing back in favor of Jesus being the Christ. And so their, their task is, is a little tougher. Um, it's not quite Jesus, right? <laughs> Jesus knew everything and knew how to interpret them and, and did, did some amazing things in response to Pharisees and Sadducees and the religious rulers. Um, but Saul, Saul is by no means a lightweight when it comes to theology and biblical interpretation. And so he's, like we said, a very good choice to be the one that's, that's carrying this message and, and taking up this debate. Um, and then in 23, it says, when many days had passed, right? So there's another indication that Saul is hanging out in Damascus for a while, right? So I don't know how long many days is, um, but it sounds like more than a couple, probably longer than a week. So he's probably been there for a while now. Um, and we find out that the Jews are now plotting to kill him. So they're tired of him. And this is the pattern that we've seen time and time again. We saw it with Jesus. We saw it with uh, Stephen. Right, that the people that Jesus and then the people that stand up to speak for Jesus that are empowered by the Holy Spirit um, are able to confound the Jewish people um, and answer and retort and undercut all of their arguments about Jesus not being the Christ. And finally, the Jews get to the point where uh, they're done arguing and they decide, okay, we're going to kill them. Right? We can't we can't beat them in terms of argument and debate, so we're just going to take them out. And so that has happened before. <laughs> At least twice. Um, do you think it's a. Since we talked about Saul, like not necessarily, maybe he wasn't such a bad guy. Do you think maybe this was kind of the same way? Like they weren't like trying to be like jerks and be like, oh, we're just going to Maybe they thought they were doing the right thing? Well, it's very, very likely. I mean, there's probably a whole mix of. Um, motivations for why the various people that make up the Jewish leadership that make the decision make the decision. Um, certainly, they justify the decision by saying it's heresy and we got to get eradicated. Uh, I'm sure there are those that honestly believe that, and I'm sure there are others, um, like Lonnie said a couple weeks ago, sort of about Saul and sort of the typical Pharisee that's um, just arrogant and power hungry, and they realize that. What's being said is undercutting their power, and so for political and power reasons, they need to have it happen. So um, I, there's probably multiple reasons, and there are probably some that we don't even know and can't even imagine. Why they, maybe they just they've hated and are jealous of Saul because he's a big, big shot, and here's the shot that we get to take him out. You know, I, there could be many reasons, but I'd say those are probably the two big ones. Like I, I honestly do believe it's heretical, and we have to take care of it. Um, and the Old Testament tells us that the way we deal with heresy is to kill them. And the other is they're threatening my power. And so for political reasons, I'm going to take them out so they're not a threat. Um, I think both of those are, are very valid. Beyond that, we can speculate. So. But we're told there that the Jews decide to kill him, um, but Saul finds out about it. Um, and then right there in the end of 24, it says they're watching the gates um, day by night in order to kill him. So they're actually staking him out, looking to kill him. And we're told that the disciples, right? Whose disciples? 
text say? Yeah, it does. But his disciples, right? Yeah, right there, twenty-five. But his disciples took him by night and left him down. So, I mean, ultimately, that's a disciple of Jesus, certainly, right? But what this says is that Saul has now gathered students. Like he's he's become a prominent teacher in the Jesus movement already, and so he has people coming to sit at his feet, um, like we saw them sit at Jesus' feet to to hear his interpretation of the, the scriptures to hear his justification for Jesus being the Christ, the Son of God. Um, and so now, now those people, I mean, obviously care about Saul as their teacher and their brother. Um, and so this is kind of interesting. They put him in a basket. I mean, obviously it's going to be a decent-sized basket. And they lower him outside the walls of either the house or um, presumably it's a gated, almost uh, like castle area, a town. Um, most of the you know towns and cities um, population centers were walled, and so um, to get him around the sort of the, the guard, the watch guard that's been set outside the doors, they lower him out a window uh, or through an opening in the wall. Let's say a window, an opening in the wall, and lower him down so he can run away. Um, and so that's that's an interesting start to Saul's ministry, right? Obviously, he comes out with powerful. Um, in terms of his ability and his uh, insight um, and his willingness, um, his readiness to speak for Jesus. Um, clearly, he's taking on the Jews real quick um, to the point that they decide he needs to be dealt with, and then he runs away. So the Jews were running from him, now he's running from Jesus. Well, yes. yeah, the Jews weren't running from him, the, the Christians, the, the Christ followers. Yeah, and we're, we're you know, like we said a couple weeks ago, I mean, put yourself in the shoes of most of the Jesus followers in Damascus. When you hear Saul's coming, you probably take off, right? And Ananias and probably a number were left who were maybe a little braver or stupid. I don't know either. Um, but yeah, you were doing the terrorizing, and now here you are running in a basket. Yeah, I mean, dropped out of a basket, you know, like little baby Moses. <laughs> Right, that's, that's what comes to mind to me when you put somebody in a basket. That's Moses, right? Um, I'm not saying that there's a theological link there. That's just what comes to my mind. Um, but yeah, curl up in a basket, being lowered out of a wall, and you just you bolt. And that's how Saul starts, right? Uh, where does he go? <laughs> no, he doesn't go to the desert. <laughs> What's that? Well, yeah, he's going to travel through, probably through some desert as he goes to where he's going. But where is it that he's going? Jerusalem. Right, so he goes back to Jerusalem. Because if things weren't bad enough in Damascus, let's go back to the Jerusalem where I got sent to begin with to kill the Christians. I'm going back as a Christian now. Uh, remember, that term doesn't exist. Um, but he's going back to um, really the, the power center of Judaism. Right, this is this is the capital. This is where the temple is. Um, he's going back in the lion's den, so to speak. Um, why? I, I, I don't. I don't know. It doesn't say why. Um, but it says he goes back and tries to join the disciples. Right. So he's he's going back to what is now his family. What he understands his family. He's been accepted as one of the brothers in Damascus, and now he's going back to Jerusalem as. Hey, now I'm one of you. And he shows up and they say, No, you're not. <laughs> right? They were all afraid of him. Again, I mean, here, here we have 
uh, a fledgling community that's really been fighting to stay alive, literally um, and metaphorically. Um, it's just getting off the ground, and Saul is the one that's been trying to attack them and been dragging them off. Remember we read right after Stephen's um, episode, that little blurb about Saul, about how he approved, and then he goes off and he starts dragging men and women out of their houses and putting them in prison, um, presumably stoning some of them um, and, and doing it as what he does. So now he's coming back to a people who he has actually terrorized, right? Whereas Damascus, he never got around to it. They're just worried about his reputation. Now he's coming back to a people who have actually suffered at his hands, right? There are people in prison because he put them there, right? He's coming back to, it's like someone walking in here who put our brothers and sisters in prison saying, hey guys, how you doing? I'm one of you now. When your family, your, your actual family, not just your Christian, but your biological family is sitting in jail because of what he's done. So you can understand why they're a little apprehensive and a little reluctant to accept um, this Saul guy back into their fold for some real emotional, personal reasons, but also who he was before, um, regardless of the fact that your family is now in jail because of him. But there's this guy, Barnabas, and we're gonna, he's going to become, um, he becomes Paul's uh, traveling partner for a while, if I remember correctly. We're going to get there um, and learn a little bit more about who he is. But for now, he's, uh, he's the guy who takes, takes Saul, right? And he brings him in front of the apostles. The apostles being who? Uh, the twelve. Right, it's the twelve. It's Jesus is twelve, right? Um, so they're the they're the the leaders of the movement, right? They're the ones that had been spent and really learned from Jesus, spent time with Jesus, learned from him, um, and so they're sort of the head of the movement. And so Barnabas grabs Saul, takes him straight to the leadership of the Christian or the Jesus movement, um, and what does he do? Yeah, yeah, both of those are right. He, that, that's literally what he does, and that's what he's doing. He's, he's, pre, he's presenting his credentials. Remember we talked about this moment of Jesus on the road, and we looked at it in comparison to... Remember what we looked at in, in comparison to? Oh, uh, da, 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 da. No. It's Ezekiel. Remember we went back and we read part of Ezekiel's vision and his call story, right? And we talked about how as a prophet of God, prophets always presented their call stories, this moment in which God came to them and said, I need you to do this for me. And so as a prophet, it's important to have that moment where God appoints you, anoints you, calls you to speak for him, right? And we see that with all the prophets. And we talked about how this moment on the road um, looks very much like the moment out of Ezekiel's call story where he sees and Ezekiel says, I saw the likeness of the glory of God. Um, right? A light shone around. I heard a voice. I fell to my knees. And that's exactly what we see happen with Saul on the road. So what Barnabas here is doing is presenting Saul with his call story to the apostles. Right? And so it is, it is telling them what happened on the road. It is pre- presenting his credentials. 
Um, but it's presenting his credentials as a prophet like we would have expected given the history of the way God calls prophets in the Old Testament. Right? And so it's not just as God did this. It was God did the same thing that he's always done, and this time he's done it for Saul, despite who Saul was. So that's what gives him the authority and the, the credential. Does that make sense? You good? Everybody has something to say? Not yet. Okay. All right, so that's what, that's what Barnabas does. Um, so he, he presents the call story as the credential or the means by which God has actually called him into the community um, as, as an apostle. Because um, remember, the apostle in, in Luke's telling um, is one who has spent time with and seen and encountered the risen Christ. Uh, and it's important that Paul later says, I saw the risen Christ. That moment on the Damascus Road is the physical manifestation of Jesus in his body back on the road. Um, and so that has happened, but then also he goes on to say what Saul did subsequently in Damascus about the way in which he stands up and he preaches and, and that he did so boldly at the risk of his own life. And presumably they talk about the way that they had to run for their lives because the Jews up there were trying to kill him. Um, and so it's, it's not just that he's trying to get, like, he's putting his life on the line he already has for the movement for Jesus. And so you can trust him. Um, And so it doesn't say there, but between 27 and 28, um, you assume we can assume that the apostles agree. They sign off because one minute Barnabas is presenting his credentials, and in 28 it says, "So he went out, or he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching bodily, boldly in the name of the Lord." So we assume the apostles have now signed off. He's now sort of has a standing in the community. He's now been accepted into the community, and he goes out preaching. Um, doing the same thing that he's done in Damascus, now in the streets of Jerusalem. Think about that one for a minute. Wait, I was thinking, what did you say? <laughs> Jerusalem. Yeah, now we have Saul preaching the gospel in the streets of Jerusalem. Think about that context. Think about who he was, where he came from, what's going on in Jerusalem, and what it means now that Saul is now out in the street. Seeing yeah, now it's visible. Yeah, situation. right. Saul's known, right? He's a big deal. As, as far as remember, the Pharisees are the ones that are uh, well. Take they take the responsibility upon themselves to enforce Judaic law, right? They're the sect that sort of um, through all sorts of pressure, um, threats, what you know, different ways, they go out and they make sure that you as a Jew are living the right life. Right? Scribes are the ones that sort of help interpret the law, and the Pharisees are the ones that sort of take it to the streets, and uh, they're the, the brute force to make sure it happens. Um, and he is sort of the chief among them, and so the population of Judaism knows who Saul is. It's not like this random guy starts you know, street preaching. Here is the guy that used to beat us over the head with Judaic law, now preaching about grace and mercy and forgiveness and Jesus, and who this... Jesus was and how he is the Christ and fulfillment of everything that we had expected. Um, put yourself in the shoes of the other Pharisees or the high priest. What do you, what do you think about this? Here we go again. <laughs> well, not only here we go again. <laughs> That's my reaction to be mad. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. 
right? I mean, this this is the guy that you just commissioned to go bind and carry back to Jerusalem and wipe out the Jesus movement. No, it's a part of it. I'm probably thinking we need to do something about this. Yeah. For sure. What I mean, what else is going through potentially going through your mind? I mean, you have to. I'm assuming, but they have to be become just start questioning like, what is this? Like, they still can't just be like, no. Like you have a fellow brother in Judaism that you know is firm in his belief, goes out and comes back all Jesusified, <laughs> and like you're gonna be like, I mean, I imagine you're gonna be mad, and then you're gonna be like, oh, what happened? Like you're yeah. gonna have to start. I'm sure there are those that, that respond that way. Yeah, I mean, and you're right, we're speculating, but like, what, what else might be going through your mind? What do you think, Andy? I'm not thinking that you're in there. <laughs> now, I was thinking the same thing along the line that you were thinking, is that there's some people who are going to hate on, some people are going to start questioning this, some people may, you know, um, uh, want to secretly approach them. You never know what each individual was thinking, but definitely um, everybody's probably shocked to see this. Sure. Yeah. You know, and I can't help but wonder, like, to what extent are they thinking, well, now what do we do? Right? <laughs> like, you cut off Jesus, thinking that it's going to end, and up pops Stephen. And so you stone him, Right? And then up pops Philip, and he takes off and goes and plants this this Jesus movement in another part of the the world, right outside your boundaries, but in another part of the world, um, in Samaria. And so you commission your big gun, like Saul's Saul's the big gun, right? He's he's the one who's zealous. He's the one he's the one who's going to do the dirty work for you, right? He's your Guido, right? He is. Right? He's your strong arm. And so you send him out, and all of a sudden he comes back, and like Chris said, he's been, Guido's been Jesified. Right? And, you know, but he's been flipped. Now, now all of a sudden he is the staunchest, most ardent voice for Jesus. And now he's walking through your streets preaching and doing so very intellectually, very. Uh, very well, right? His arguments are very well thought out. His interpretation of the scripture is spot on. And so the the big gun you thought was going to take care of Jesus has now tur- been turned around, and now you have the best and the brightest presenting the opposite case. And, and to some extent, I got to think they're thinking, what do we do, what do, we do now? <laughs> right? Like this is this is getting out of control, which it is, and that's the point. Um, so I think all of that's got to be worn into their head. They're, they're definitely upset. They're definitely mad. Um, they definitely have got to be some of them thinking, well, maybe there's something to this if Paul or Saul all of a sudden is about it. But to some extent, i got to think some of the, the more ardent leadership is thinking, what, what now? Right? Um, and there in 29, we see that... Um, he takes on a particular group. Who, what's that group? The Hellenists, right? So the Hellenists are back again. They, they've, they've become sort of prominent. Remember, Saul is a Hellenist. 
right? Remember, he's Saul of Tarsus, and Tarsus is up on the Mediterranean Sea. It's, it's in the Greco-Roman world. So he's, he's one of them, right, that had been dispersed in the rest of the world and had come back. Um, so he's now taking on his own, right? These are the, the, the Jews that have really grabbed on to tradition because they were living in another culture. Um, and now, so he's back arguing with them, um, and they, we see right there in the second half of 29, they turn and decide, they're gonna, well, we got to take care of him too now, right? The hit list is getting very long <laughs> for the Jewish authority, um, and now Saul's at the top of it. Um, and then in 30, this is, you know, this pattern is repeat, the same pattern that we just saw in Damascus. They learn about the, the plot to kill him, that they want to kill him. And so they decide that they need to send him away. Um, I think probably for a number of reasons, but um, it says when they learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Uh, Where's Tarsus? What is Tarsus? That's off the fish. That's exactly what I was thinking. I was like, that's the city north across the sea. Yeah, 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 yeah. Remember, we looked at this map. Uh, you can't see it, but if you can see Cilicia at the very top there, at the very top point, um, that's Tarsus, right? And so if you follow his journeys, this uh, pink line there from Jerusalem goes up to Damascus, or after the purple one, and then there's a red one that comes back down to Jerusalem. You guys see that? Okay, Tarsus at the top. Yes. Right? Here's Jerusalem. Alright, so this purple line right here is his journey up to Damascus. On that journey is the Damascus Road experience where he sees, sees Jesus, he talks to him. Then the red one, he comes back to Jerusalem, that's where we just started today. Alright, and then this big blue line, right, this is the, the brothers that we're reading about now. They figure out that the Hellenists want to kill Saul. They take him over to the area of Caesarea, they put him on a ship, and they ship him off to Tarsus, which is way up there. Okay. Okay. Sorry? Would it take, you know, to get to get from one area to the other? Um, don't know for sure. I'm sure we can find that out. Um, you know, the 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 road, several days, uh, the ship ride. I don't know. I'm, I'm guessing, but a week. I mean, it would take a while. It's not. It's not like I leave this morning. I'm going to get there tonight. It's going to take a little while. Um, but who is Saul? Saul of what? Is his name? Always. Saul of what? Saul of Tarsus. Right? Where are they sending him? Home. Right? So they put him on a boat and send him home. That's an interesting turn of events. Right? Um, and so it's, I mean, I, we're sort of speculating that, that the will of God here, but it's as if um, he's commissioned Saul, said, I need you to do this for me, and you're going to go start at home. You're going to go back where he came from. And we're going to start there, and we're going to move out from there, right? And you can sort of see he's going to move on to a number of different places at a number of different occasions. He ends up back in Jerusalem. He stops off a number of other places. Um, and this is just one of the maps of Saul's journeys. He's going to go all sorts of other places as well. Um, but what has been established here is the pattern of Saul's mission, his missionary life, okay? He goes, he stands in the streets, uh, he works with, you know, what is at this point sort of a house church movement. Um, he preaches the gospel, people get upset, they threaten him, and he runs. 
And he runs to the next town. And he <laughs> sets up shop and he does the same thing until they get upset at him. And he has to run again. Um, and so that's, that's an interesting way to think about uh, how we ought to go about spreading the word. I mean, if Paul is the model, and I'm not saying that he is the, the perfect model that we should follow necessarily, but he certainly is a model. Um, I mean, he talks until he gets yelled at and they threaten his life and he says, okay, I'll go somewhere else and he goes somewhere else. Um, and we'll tease that out certainly as we go forward. So, um, But then at the very end there, um, the last paragraph says, uh, and with this statement, you can almost hear them go, ah, right? <laughs> Saul's on a ship. He's off to Tarsus. He's out of our hair, right? He was at first the guy who's trying to sort of eradicate us. Then he came back and he's the lightning rod that um, is causing the anger of the religious leadership to fall upon not only him but us, right? Because he was causing all sorts of trouble. He's the vocal one. And so now he's on the ship and he's gone. And so that whole event around Saul is sort of calm for a while, right? And it says, it says that the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit and multiplied. So when Saul gets on a ship and he goes off to Tarsus to the other side of the Mediterranean Sea, right? A, a journey away, however long it takes, there's this time where the church gets to sort of relax for a minute, right? There's this breathing time in which um, the most vocal and ardent opposition is now taken care of, right? And taken care of in a pretty miraculous way. Um, and we can just sort of relax a little while, Luke tells us. And I found it interesting that it ends with it multiplies, and the thought that came to my mind is that uh, even though it's a time of you know, peace, people are still talking about the Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. And people yeah. are still, uh, you know, they probably weren't bold enough to ask about it at the time that it was happening, or maybe in secret they were like, hey, what? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There's got to be a, mo a time of sort of deconstructing and uh, debriefing about what in the world just happened, right? Um, for sure. I, I think it's interesting there. Also, it says uh, they walk in the fear of the Lord, which is a term. Um, I mean, it's not afraid of God. I mean, it's, it's, that's a term of respect that they have a health, they have healthy respect of who God is and what He can do. Um, and so there's a, there's an element of sort of I better not step out of line because he's going to come and whack me hard, right? Um, so there's a little bit of healthy fear and respect that you would maybe have for a good parent. Um, so that's what fear is. And then the second phrase that stands in opposition to that, the fear of the Lord. Yeah, that, that, whole, that whole thing. Yeah, and then the, the comfort of the Holy Spirit, Right? In, in so many places, we hear, we hear about the power of the Holy Spirit, right? And we think of the Spirit coming to um, embolden us and embody us to, to, or indwell us to allow us to go out and do the kinds of things that we see Saul doing now. And, and here is this moment where um, the Holy Spirit is described as the comforter, the one that sort of helps the peace rest on the church now. Like, we, okay, we've been through that, now just relax. It'll be okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and it's important to realize that that is, I mean, the Holy Spirit is referred to often as the comforter, right? That, that is an aspect of God, right? That is, 
that is a role that the Spirit plays in our everyday life to come and sort of say, have peace, it's going to be okay. Right? Verse 9 says encouraged by. Encouraged by, okay. Yeah. Um, so let's go back because it's really interesting um, that what Saul says in Damascus, what he goes and he proclaims is, what's the phrase he uses? Okay, and I told you that's the first time it shows up in Luke, right? What does it mean to you to say Jesus is the Son of God? I'm sorry, in Acts. First time Luke uses it in Acts. Sorry? I just think it literally means that he's God's son. He's God's son, okay. <laughs> what, what does that mean? Well, you know, that is confusing because he's <laughs> yeah. yeah, you say it like it's so matter of fact. What, what, what is, what is, he is literally the son of God, but what, is, what does that mean? Well, just that, that God and Jesus are two separate bodies, like a mother and child, that they they were one together, and so uh, you know, like a um, a baby inside of a mother's belly has its own DNA, has its own blood system, and everything. Yet it's in another person's body, so it's its own individual person, own individual body. Yet. You know, without the DNA of the mother and, of course, the father, it couldn't exist. But Jesus didn't have DNA from a mother. He only had DNA from a father, of course. The father, because he is, you know. So that's how it was told to me one time. I'm not saying that's a great explanation. You just asked me to tell you. Yeah, that's <laughs> we, we use all sorts of metaphors to try and explain this, right? Set aside what you think you know. And be the person that is asking you and doesn't know at all. And you say, Jesus is the Son of God. What do they assume? What does the phrase literally mean for us? (laughs) There's a mother, there's a father, right? And Jesus is the offspring of God. Right? I mean, that's what the, the modern day English literally means, right? If I'm my parents' son, that means they... When two people love each other very much, right? (laughs) (laughs) Right? But but that's you know. So we we got to start there because that's the phrase, that's the term, right? He's the son of God, and so very quickly we can say, well, that's not exactly what we mean by it, right? And so we have to go to these other sort of explanations. So the, the term son of God is sort of problematic in in some ways. That has to do with language. Right? has to do not only with language now, but the fact that language now is different than the language then, and we get all sorts of problems there. So, go ahead. Is it a callback to some man? 
Well, that's an interesting thing, because Jesus never calls himself the Son of God. Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. So that's bizarre. Even that statement, I was just curious. I don't know how to jerk it. Yeah, I'm just like, well, we're going to deal with it right now. We're going to try to. I mean, and, and I'm not at all um, expecting us to have all the answers here. This is something that obviously the church for 2,000 years has sort of tried to understand and wrap our heads around and um, we just have to sort of live with the, the mystery of, I don't know exactly how all that works, and go on. Um, but I think to the extent that we continue to meditate on it and try and um, grasp it, it helps us understand the nature of God and who he is and how he's working. Um, and so the more that we can understand it, the better. Um, but we say that knowing that we will never fully understand it. So that's sort of the framework of the conversation that we're having right now. So what does the Son of God mean? Because Joey's right, there's this term called Son of Man, and that's the one that Jesus used for himself. In some ways, what we're asking is, how does, how does Jesus relate to God? Well, right, it's almost like the representation of God. Okay, and that's biblical, right? At one time. Or actually for all times, right? Because Jesus, uh, once Jesus, I'll say this and we're going to come back and massage it later, but once Jesus is Jesus, right, and he ascends, like he still exists, he, he moves into the realm of heaven, sits at the throne, and exists. And then he shows up on the road for Paul, like he's, he still is the body, bodily form of Jesus, right? We're not told that he sort of goes back and becomes spirit again. He has resurrected Jesus, which now somehow moves in between sort of heaven and earth, these two realms. But the word he is. Pipeline keeps going through my head. Sorry. The word pipeline keeps going through my head. Okay, I say that. He's the he's the son of God. He's he's the one that the Old Testament kept talking about coming in this. Life. What was the term they were using? Messiah. Okay. What was it then? The Christ. Remember, Christ is not Jesus' last name. Yeah. <laughs> Christ is the ter- Christ means that Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah. Right. So when you say Jesus Christ, you're saying Jesus the Messiah. So it's it's an adjective or another noun. It's not a last second name. Right. So Jesus is the Christ. Right. And that was what they were expecting. You're very much right. And um, I think to a large extent that hits the nail directly on the head because. Uh, I mean, go back to Son of Man. What was Son of Man? Son of Man is taken from some passages in Daniel, and we looked at this at the end of Luke, um, and some other Old Testament passages, and was um, prophetic in a way that the, the church at the time of Jesus understood the Son of Man to be the coming Messiah. And so when Jesus says, I'm the Son of Man, the people that hear him say that go back to Daniel, where it talks about the Son of Man that's to come, and that is the Christ figure. The Christ man, the Messiah. Okay, yeah. Um, and so, Son of Man is all over the place in the Old Testament. Son of God isn't. Right? And so, that might explain a little bit about why Jesus would use Son of Man and not Son of God. But here comes Saul in the early church and Peter in the moment when Jesus asks him, Who do you say that I am? They say, You are the Son of God. Okay, so there, there's this, this new 
twist going on here in the early church in the wake of Jesus. Um, but it does, the, the idea of the Son of God does show up again. It shows up twice. Um, it shows up first in Exodus in chapter 4. It's uh, sort of verse 22 and 23. I'm going to read from 21 on. It says, uh, this is Moses um, at the time of the Exodus, right? He's going back and forth to Pharaoh. Um, and this is um, the words of God to Moses as he goes to Pharaoh to say, you know, let my people go. Um, God, it says, and the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. Right? But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. We know that that happens. It says, then you will say, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So in Exodus chapter 4, Son of God is Israel. God claims Israel, the nation, and says, that's my son. Okay. The next time it shows up is in... Sorry? Yeah, it blew mine earlier this week. That, that blew mine. Okay, hang on to it, because this is going to help fill it out, I think, and um, I'll let you talk about why that's the case, right? So this is Psalm, this is uh, Psalm 2. Um, it is a 12-verse psalm, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but what, what shows up is in verse 7. It says, I will tell of the decree. Um, this psalm is about nations... Um, and their ability to choose to follow God or not to follow God. Um, remember, this is uh, Psalms, most of them are written by David. This one doesn't say it's written by David. Um, so there are actually many psalm writers uh, who make up the psalms. But it is about Israel in the time of David. Okay, um, And remember, David is a big deal. Remember, David is the man after God's own heart. Um, it will be a son of David that will come, that will be the Messiah. Um, so just like... Israel at the Exodus is a really big deal for Israel in its history. So is David in the Davidic kingdom um, and the Davidic rulers. Um, it says, I will tell the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Um, and so this is the other time when God claims a son. And um, it is... Most often understood, um, it's certainly this is a messianic prophecy. As we look back at this, we see, and we need to say about prophecies in the Old Testament, that when we look back at them, they, they have two purposes, right? They're, they're saying something to the people at that time. But as we look back at them, we also look at them and say, well, what was going on at the time was a signpost and a pointer to what God would do with the Messiah ultimately. And so he's sort of, those moments and those prophets are forerunners of the Christ that's to come. Okay, so there's sort of a dual purpose in prophecy. Um, and so as the early church looks back at that one, um, they say, oh, well, that was about Jesus for sure. But that was also actually about David and the Davidic kings. All right, and so this was a psalm about God looking at the kings of Israel. Remember, Saul was, 
Saul, different Saul, Old Testament Saul, was the first king of Israel. David was the one after him, then comes Solomon, and then come a, a couple others. Yeah, we do, don't we? All right. So this comes sort of, uh, I forget the exact period in terms of dates, but you know, you've got the Exodus in which God calls Israel his son. And then you have the Davidic kings as the head of Israel, who he looks at and says, you are my son. All right. And so those are the background for when Saul stands up and says, Jesus is the son of God. Yes, right? And so, let's tease that out because that's dead on and really important to understand. So when the New Testament writers and the early church says Jesus is the Son of God, um, by that time, the phrase Son of God in Judaism had come to be Messianic. Right? They understood Son of Man, Son of God. These were terms that were referring to the Christ, to the Messiah. Um, and we have to also go back to this idea that an understanding that Jesus is the sum of the end of the completion, the fruition, the carrying out of everything that God started in the beginning, right? Everything leads up to Jesus as the Messiah that will complete the redemption project, right? And so if you go back to God's promise to Abraham, when he says, I will bring out of you, um, Descendants and a family um, and a nation that will be a blessing to all the world, right? It is Israel as the nation that is to bless the world, and it is Jesus as its head, as as embodying Israel that is the completion of that promise, right? Jesus is the one that brings the blessing, right? So when in Exodus God says, Israel is my son, Jesus is the actual embodiment of that sonship, and carries with it all of the promises made to Israel and all of the role that Israel was intended to be for the world. Does that make, does that make sense? Israel was set aside to be a blessing to the world, not just to itself, but to all nations. And Jesus is the actual completion of that, like you said. In the same way that David in the middle of it is the head, and they are then to be a blessing to all the world. All right, so that's just sort of a midpoint, stopping off point before we get to Jesus. In, in the story, but serves the same role. Does that make sense? So, if we understand sort of the Old Testament understanding of what, because remember, the old, like we said before, the Old Testament is the backdrop for everything that happens in the New Testament. When Saul, when Saul gets up and says, Jesus is the Son of God, like, in their, in their, yeah, in their, in their mind, Jesus is the, the, uh, the end, not the end of Israel, but the completion of Israel, the, is, the, the Israel project. Jesus is the true king, you know, that we once thought David was. Jesus is all of that stuff rolled up into one person. Right? We don't mean Jesus is the reproductive offspring of God. That's not at all what it means. Right? And so I'm going to take issue with the pregnancy metaphor. Yeah. Right? <laughs> right? Right? Yeah. Uh, 
Yeah. That's what Jesus says, right? Yeah, and when Jesus says it is finished, he not, means not only his mission, but the entire Israel project and the, the promise that was made. The covenant promise that was made at Abraham and then repeated um, to a number of people, not the least of which was David, right? All of that now covenantal history comes to completion and is finished in Jesus on the cross and his, who he is. And then we get to launch out to the new covenant that he's now instituted. So to say God, Jesus is the Son of God is much more profound than we usually think. Oh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? Now, Son of God is the be-all, end-all bad boy, or really good boy, right? <laughs> right? That, that we have all been waiting for, right? And so the proclamation that Jesus is the Son of God. But in Paul, it also definitely takes on divine meaning. Okay, so Son of God is, the term morphs throughout the history of Israel to become this messianic prophecy. And then Paul saw in the early church add to it and expand upon it and recognize that the Son of God that we have been expecting, we never expected it to be God himself. Right? Son of God did not necessarily mean divinity. In the way that Son of Man never meant divinity. Messiah was never, they never thought that it would be God himself. They were expecting God to send a person that he would raise up and deliver them. Right? So Son of God, when he stands up and says, Jesus is the Son of God, and Jews hear him, they're not hearing him necessarily say he's the divine person, third person of the Trinity. Right? They're hearing him say, Jesus was the Messiah that we've all been expecting. But they very quickly understand that he was actually also the Son of God, and that's what blows our mind. Right? He was divine. He was the third person of the Trinity. So somehow God broke into the world in the person of Jesus. Literally was connected with and was God at the same time. And so this term Son of God now morphs and expands and becomes divine as well as messianic. Which was not necessarily thought to be the case or expected to be the case. Does that make sense? What's crazy is like this is so profound for him becoming Paul. Because like, I mean it's probably how long how long ago was it from from Jesus to Saul Paul? How many years was it? Um there's so many people alive that saw Jesus. Oh yeah. Yeah, well he goes he goes back to the apostles, right? Okay, yeah, so like that people saw him doing this. Not saw like they actually were witnessing miracles and saw Jesus doing all these crazy things. Yeah. So when he says this, this is what wrecks everybody. Yeah. And that's so that raises like a eternal. question, right? Did they, in seeing Jesus do all of this, did they understand that he was God when he was here? No. Because he never claimed to be so. He claimed to be son of man. He never said, I'm divine that I'm aware of. Well, because the, the God was so separate to them. Yeah. Right. Although I will say towards the end, that's ultimately what gets him killed, is because in part I think they do understand him, the claims about him, which he doesn't deny, to be that he is somehow divine and connected to God in a way that the rest of us aren't. Right? But also that they never thought that this guy from Nazareth, who doesn't really have an education, could really be the Messiah. Right? 
When John, um, when John opens up his gospel, do you know how you know John one? John one one. Anybody? Look it up. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna look it up just to get it for sure right. Um, but it, Joey's right. It is. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Right? All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Um, and then he goes on to talk about the Word becoming flesh in Jesus. And, and here again, we have a bit of a language problem. Word in... Uh, the Greek is logos, right? And logos is literally word, but it also means logic, uh, wisdom. Um, Jesus is the motivating force, the creative force. We're told that everything was created through him. So Jesus, as the part of the Trinity, is the creative part that actually brought about the world in the very beginning. And then all of a sudden he takes on flesh. So the creative force of the world takes on flesh, shows up, uh, ends up being the son of God in the way that we now can understand that term. And, and now seems to be from here on out, this point, an embodied creative force. And then we talk about the Holy Spirit as being the spirit of Jesus. That term gets used. And that's the other part of the Trinity, which we're not going to go too far into today. Um, in the Old Testament, there's lots of moments in which um, you hear the wisdom of God coming to people. Um, wisdom not being uh, knowledge or intellectual acuity. Wisdom carries with it um, much of what we understand and the way we think about Holy Spirit. Um, wisdom actually is what John means by logos, by the word. And so in the Old Testament we have, it's thought, as, as we look as Christians back at the Old Testament, um, we have the second per second and or third part of the Trinity breaking in all the time in the form of what's known as wisdom into the world to help move God's story, right? And so when Paul stands up and says, Jesus was the Son of God, and then John comes around and says, well, he was the Word, he is the Word, he always has been, he, you know, through, the, through him everything was created, and oh, by the way, he took on flesh, walked the earth, and we know him as the Son of God. We sort of complete this idea that, that Jesus is the completion of the covenant, the, the Right, the the turning point, the fulcrum of time. Right, literally. I mean, we we mark our years by this moment. Uh, whether you want to say it's BC or BCE or AD or CE, right? You still have to recognize that that's the moment that we split time. Everything before it is something. Everything out of it is something else. Um, but everything marches to this point, and so he is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is Son of Man. He is the Son of God the completion, and he's also God himself. 
I mean, that's, that's probably good. I hope no, that's good. I hope to some extent everybody's sort of thinking. I mean, I know I went through that process this week as I really started to think through this again. Um, like I said, I don't, I don't have all the answers. Like, how does that really work? How does it relate? You know, I mean, there are um, parts of the church that adhere to something called modalism, and that is that it is one God, and he takes on three different forms at different times. Um, that's not the Trinity. That's not Trinitarian theology. The Trinity says all three coexist together somehow. There's, and so when we say God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, um, we're sort of splitting and categorizing these three aspects of God. Because we see them in... Yeah. But I, for me, this discussion, and particularly the Old Testament context of, of what we mean when we say Son of God, when I hear it just in everyday use... We say Son of God, and we understand it as distinct and separate from God the Father. And whether we, we, I mean, we can say, no, it's still the same, but our language sort of says that those things are different. And when you under, I, sort of this understanding of Son of God doesn't allow for that distinction, right? It brings, for me at least, it brings those two back together in a, in a way in which sort of says, this is God the Godhead reaching in and taking on flesh to be himself the fulfillment of his promise. He's still very much God. It is God, right? Jesus is God. I don't know how that works. I now know why I believe Jesus is God. I mean, I believed it, but now I have a background. Any thoughts, problems? Questions. I mean, is that is this a profound discussion for most of you? I mean, is that does it help? Like I said, I think the the study of the Trinity don't get so caught up with you've got to know every nuance of it. But the more that we become aware of what the text is telling us about how the three pieces of God, three parts of God, the, the, the Trinity works together, I think the more we become aware of God. I think understanding Jesus as, as this son of God, I don't know, my mind sort of elevates him and really makes him more God in my mind. And I can appreciate him, I can praise him, I can worship him, I can understand him and what he did a little better. And so that's why we would spend time worrying about what does this term son of God, what does the term son of man, what does the term Christ, what, what, did, what do these things mean and how, did they, how are they understood? Because I think, you know, we, we have... We will never have a full understanding of who God is in this life, but the, the closer we can get to it, I think the more real it becomes for us and the, the wiser and more discerning we become about who God is and what he's doing in the world and how we can relate to him. So I, I hope this discussion helped move that 
ball for you. It's a process. I, I'm still processing a lot of it myself. And we always will. And so hopefully we move closer and closer to a fuller understanding. Hopefully that actually helps us. Hopefully it's not just brain talk and sit around and talk about things, but hopefully this informs us as we go out into the world about who God is, who Jesus is, what the Holy Spirit is. Because the Holy Spirit relates in a very, it's got to relate in a very similar way, right? And we'll talk about that more as we go along. Um, definitely out of time for that discussion today. But Any big questions before we pause and go to worship? Say a word of prayer real quick and worship. Heavenly Father, thank you for thank you for your word and and all of its meanings. Thank you for your Son, for Jesus, for uh, being who you are. You are a, a big, amazing, powerful. God, and you have broken into our world in uh, an insanely profound way which we can only begin to comprehend. Uh, And so we thank you for who you are and what you've done, and we thank you literally for your word, for your holy scriptures that help us um, begin to wrestle with and grapple with and put some shape to who you are. We ask that you would continue to work in us to develop our understanding. Give us wisdom. Give us discernment. Give us understanding um, about who you are and your nature so that we might rightly understand um, who we are in this world so that we might uh, more fully appreciate you for who and what you are. You are good and loving and big and powerful and worthy of our fear but at the same time close to us and you long to draw us near Lord and so we ask that we would we ask that you would help us understand that and that as we see the early church putting Saul on a boat and sending him off and then resting both in fear and comfort Lord that we would we would find that spot for ourselves that we would have a healthy respect of you, who you are, but also a healthy understanding of the fact that you have extended to us love and grace and mercy and that we are to be comforted and that we are to be set out to carry your name to the world. As we come to a time of song, Lord, we just ask that you be present in our midst, that your spirit would come and be with us, that you would draw us near to you, Lord, and that you would find our praise acceptable to you. It is in the name of your Son, Jesus, and in the power of your Spirit, we ask these things. Amen.